Welcome to Come Follow Me with Brie, episode 145, The Forerunner. Hello, I'm so glad you're here. Sorry this is coming out a few hours later than usual. I have, well, I do sort of have an excuse. I was going to say I don't have a great excuse because I could have gotten it done, but I took a red eye two nights ago and last night I was just so tired and I'm not so responsible that I'm recording these like weeks in advance. Although I will say I did record last week's in advance because I took my family to a trip in Hawaii, which was so fun, but we had to take a red eye back and I was just tired. So I decided to instead wake up this morning and get it done in the morning, even though it would be a few hours late. So hopefully that didn't lose too many of you. I know some people just have a, they have a podcasting schedule and they might wake up at a certain time every day and listen to a certain podcast on an, on a certain day. So hopefully I didn't lose too many of you. Just so you know, there will be a separate episode posted as a companion episode to this one where I just go back and I repost the chapters for this week because remember in December I read all four Gospels of the New Testament. And so I will post just the chapters that are assigned for this week. So if you would like to listen to me read them instead of the Gospel Library Tool Guy read them, then you are welcome to do that. So that will come out at the same time as this episode. Okay, let's get started. So this week we are reading Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, and Luke chapter 3 which primarily is talking about John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. So that's who we're going to talk about today. I wanted to learn more about John the Baptist and understand his role even better and how his role can apply to us. So John the Baptist was the one prophesied Elias to be the one to prepare the way of Jesus Christ. Now remember that Elias is the other version of the of the name Elijah in the Old Testament, but it also just means forerunner. And John the Baptist is often described as the Elias to come. So John the Baptist was tasked with the, the task of preparing the way for Jesus Christ to come for the first time. So we have something in common with John. We are the ones tasked with preparing the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we aren't prophets like he was, unless an apostle or prophet listens to me on the regular. <laughs> but we do have an important role to play in that same task, in that same role. Let's start by talking about who John is. John was born to Zacharias and Elizabeth. When Zacharias, a priest, was in the temple performing his duties, the angel Gabriel, who, as we know through Joseph Smith, is the prophet Noah, appeared to him and told him that his wife would bear a son. And Zacharias didn't believe him because Elizabeth was old and past menopause. And I love Gabriel's response to his disbelief in Luke chapter one. He says, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and am sent to thee to speak and to shew thee these glad tidings. And it kind of reminds me of Laman and Lemuel after they saw the angel and then still doubted if they could get the plates. And Nephi is like, guys, you just saw an angel, you know, from God. Or when Abraham's wife, Sarah, was told the same thing and she laughed. So Zacharias didn't believe and he is punished for that disbelief. Gabriel made it so that he couldn't speak and perhaps as a sign to him that these things really were going to happen. So when he came out of the temple, everyone was concerned because he'd been in there for a long time, and they could tell that perhaps he had seen a vision, but he couldn't speak to tell them about what had happened. 
After his days of service in the temple were done, he went back to his own house, and Elizabeth, of course, conceived. It was about six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy that the angel Gabriel came to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and proclaimed her a different but also miraculous conception. I love that one of the things Gabriel told Mary was that she wasn't alone, that Elizabeth had also experienced something like this. And Elizabeth is someone Mary went to for companionship and comfort during her pregnancy. It says that Elizabeth is her cousin, but that really just means relative. So we don't know exactly the relationship between Mary and Elizabeth or between John the Baptist and Jesus. John and Elizabeth were one of the first people to rejoice about the Savior's birth. It says in Luke chapter 1, verse starting in verse 41, And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, because Mary had just arrived to visit Elizabeth, the babe leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. She had the spirit of revelation there. She knew who Mary carried before Mary told her, as far as we know. And John in the womb leapt for joy, certainly before he was told. (laughs) When it came time for John to be delivered. Her neighbors and relatives were all so excited. After eight days, when it came time for the circumcision, they met together for the ceremony and they planned to call him Zacharias after his father. But Elizabeth knew that the angel had commanded her husband to call him John. But the people, whoever that was, protested because no one in their family was named John. So they asked Zacharias and had him write on a tablet to see if he agreed, since he still couldn't speak, and he confirmed that John was to be his name. When he confirmed this, he was immediately able to speak and began to prophesy. And listen to what he says about John's role in preparing the way for the Savior, and think how it's similar to what our role is. Starting again in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would unto us, that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, and was in the deserts till the day of his shewing unto Israel. Okay, Luke 1 is not technically what we're studying this week, but I loved especially this prophecy about the mission that John the Baptist has. And I love that it's worded, or at least a lot of it is worded in a way that he is talking to John, who is just a little baby at the time. Kind of reminds you of baby blessings, right? That we give to little babies. And in Sunday at church, 
when the man is talking, giving that blessing, he is talking to that child, wording it as if he's directing that message to that little baby, not to the congregation, but to that child. And that's what that blessing feels like to me. It feels like a baby blessing. So let's talk about some of the things that Zacharias said in this baby blessing. He said, number one, John the Baptist was a sign that the Lord was remembering his people. Number two, he was symbolically a horn raised up. Think of what a horn meant in those days. It was often a sound of warning or announcement. Number three, he was a sign that they could and would be saved. Number four, he was a sign that the Father was continuing to show mercy to his people. Number five, he was to give knowledge of salvation by the remission of their sins. Number six, he was to give light to those who sat in darkness. And number seven, he was to guide feet to the way of peace. Pretty cool baby blessing, right? And one of my favorite phrases in there that he says, he said that he would unto us that we being delivered out of the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear. This whole plan that has been carried out and is still continuing to be carried out makes it so we can, it is possible for us to serve him without fear. Isn't that cool? And why is that? I think that it's ultimately because because of this plan, if we have faith in the plan, if we understand the plan, if we feel and really believe to our core that we are saved, that everything is in his hands, that it's all taken care of as long as we choose him, we don't really have a reason to fear. Now, I'm not really saying that's easy, <laughs> but I do fully believe that it's possible. Okay, so these things that Zacharias lists about John the Baptist and what his birth and mission means, doesn't that describe what we should be doing as a people and what the gospel does for all the world? And isn't that cool when we tie it back to living without fear, that the gospel, sharing the message of the gospel, makes it possible that the world, that anybody who who accepts that, then has within their grasp within their ability to live without fear. John is considered by most Christian religions as the final and greatest prophet, which I hadn't ever thought about before, that John the Baptist is the final prophet before most Christians believe that there are no more prophets. Of course, we consider him to be the final prophet before Jesus Christ, since we consider the modern 12 apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators, and we would consider Christ's apostles and those following in the New Testament prophets. And we also have record of prophets in the Book of Mormon after Jesus' death. So obviously, we don't consider him the last, even in New Testament times. But we for sure consider him great. John's main message consisted of repentance and baptism. He called out the Pharisees and Sadducees for their hypocrisy, reminding them that they couldn't just claim repentance, but actually had to bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Basically, practice what you claim to believe. I love what he says to them here in the Joseph Smith translation version. And just so you know, there is a lot of Joseph Smith translation in these chapters. So he says, starting in verse 34, Why is it that ye receive not the preaching of him whom God hath sent? If ye receive not this in your hearts, ye receive not me. And if ye receive not me, ye receive not him of whom I am sent to bear record. For your sins ye have no cloak. Repent therefore, and bring forth fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We are the children of Abraham, and we only have power to bring seed unto our father Abraham. For I say unto you that God is able to of these stones raise up children into Abraham. 
And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now I love that John is bearing witness to what we do as gathering Israel today, to the mission of the church right now. There isn't a bloodline that we're trying to stick to as we gather Israel. God is able of these stones to raise up children into Abraham. Anyone can be joined to Israel. It doesn't matter if you have the blood of Abraham. If you don't produce the fruit or the works of righteous living, he'll cut down your tree eventually. He doesn't need that tree in the vineyard. God can raise up children to Abraham, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant out of stones, out of people who are not of the bloodline of Israel. Then he talks about the reason for his ministry to prepare the way for Jesus. In the three gospels that we are reading this week, it says pretty much variations of the same thing. So we're just going to read Matthew chapter three, the Joseph Smith translation version, starting in verse 38 which you'll notice in a lot of these Joseph Smith translations, the verses don't match up anymore. So if you look at verse 38 in Matthew chapter 3, it does not go at all with this. They're all kind of uh, mixed up. Okay, 38. I indeed baptize you with water upon your repentance. And when he of whom I bear record cometh, who is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, or whose place I am not able to fill, as I said, I indeed baptize you before he cometh, that when he cometh, he may baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. And it is he of whom I shall bear record, whose fan shall be in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but in the fullness of his own time will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Thus came John, preaching and baptizing in the river of Jordan, bearing record that he who was coming after him had power to baptize with the Holy Ghost and fire. I love that part. That just feels so bold to me. Thus came John preaching and baptizing in the river of Jordan, bearing record that he who was coming after him had power to baptize with the Holy Ghost and fire. That's what John spent his time doing, bearing record of the Messiah. Why did John say that he would baptize with water, but not fire? Joseph Smith said, in the first place, suffice it to say, I went into the woods to inquire of the Lord by prayer, his will concerning me. And I saw an angel, John the Baptist, and he laid his hands upon my head and ordained me to a priest after the order of Aaron and to hold the keys of this priesthood, which office was to preach repentance and baptism for the remission of sins and also to baptize. But I was informed that this office did not extend to the laying on of hands for the giving of the Holy Ghost, that that office was a greater work and was to be given afterwards word, but that my ordination was a preparatory work or a going before, which was the spirit of Elias. For the spirit of Elias was going before to prepare the way for the greater, which was the case with John the Baptist. He came crying through the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So baptism is of the Aaronic priesthood and conferring the gift of the Holy Ghost is the Melchizedek priesthood. Joseph Smith continues, If he had been an impostor, he might have gone to work beyond his bounds and undertook to have performed ordinances which did not belong to that office and calling under the spirit of Elias. The spirit of Elias is to prepare the way for a greater revelation of God, which the spirit of Elias is the priesthood of Elias, or the priesthood that Aaron was ordained unto. And when God sends a man into the world to prepare for a greater work, holding the keys of the power of Elias, it was called the doctrine of Elias, even from the early ages of the 
the world. John's mission was limited to preaching and baptizing, and what he did was legal. And when Jesus Christ came to any of John's disciples, he baptized them with fire and the Holy Ghost. John did not transcend his bounds, but faithfully performed that part belonging to his office. And every portion of the great building should be prepared right and assigned to its proper place. And it is necessary to know who holds the keys of power and who does not, or we may be likely to be deceived. Let's go back to our list of things that were John's mission. I want to add one more thing. I would say number eight is baptism. Baptism has been taught from the very beginning. We know from Moses chapter six that Adam and Eve were taught about baptism. What are one of our main goals as the Lord's covenant people? To bring people to baptism. Whether that is through missionary work for the living or through temple missionary work for the dead, we are doing a lot of trying to get people baptized. And the cool thing that we as a people have been given is the power to baptize with the Holy Ghost. We have both the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood. So we get to do what John the Baptist did, and we get to use the authority that Jesus Christ had to baptize with the Holy Ghost. Why? Why do we care if people get baptized? Is it so that we can add to our numbers and grow bigger and collect more tithing and and convert people to our way of thinking in a prideful way? No, we care because the Lord himself said that it was necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And we know that it is the entryway into salvation. The Lord says it best when he himself, the greatest of all, came to be baptized despite John's protesting that he was not worthy. Matthew chapter 3, Joseph Smith translation version. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer me to be baptized of thee, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him to fulfill all righteousness. The ultimate symbol of fulfilling all righteousness doesn't just mean not doing bad things. It includes doing things we've been commanded to do. So let's get to our list of the purposes of the mission of John the Baptist and how it relates to us. Number one, John the Baptist was a sign that the Lord was remembering his people. The restoration of the gospel and the priesthood authority to baptize on the earth is the most magnificent sign that the Lord is remembering his people. That authority was restored to the earth, remembering his people. The morning of the first vision marked the beginning of the end of this mortal story on earth and the Lord's final gathering of Israel. Isn't that amazing? We are not disconnected from these people from long ago. Just like them, we are the Lord's covenant people. And as the Lord's covenant people, we get to help anyone follow that same path that the Lord set for us when he told us it was necessary to fulfill all righteousness, to be baptized for the remission of our sins and renew that covenant each week. This restoration of all things is a sign that the Lord remembers his promises. Number two, he was symbolically a horn raised up. A horn in those days was often a sound of warning or announcement. Predictably, the world doesn't like this one. Sometimes we don't like this one. As Nephi says, the wicked taketh the truth to be hard for it cuts them to the very center. I think we've all felt that when we hear truth about a behavior that we are engaged in, we don't want to hear it. For me, that's always a warning sign that maybe my heart isn't in the right place if something bothers me. Now, that's not always the case. I think that there are times when something really does actually need to be addressed, or perhaps it's not my heart that's in the wrong place. Perhaps I just don't fully understand. There's all kinds of variations of what could be true in that situation. But I do find that more often than not, it's my heart that needs to be changed. 
when we're called out, it makes us think thoughts that bring feelings of guilt. What does that look like in our daily lives? Does that mean that we should go around telling everyone what they're doing wrong? No. I think the life and teachings of Jesus tell us differently. We first need to always look inward. We need to hear those warning horns for ourselves. But what is our role for other people? For me in my life, I think my most important role that I can serve the people within my sphere of influence is speaking the truth as the Lord defines it, no matter how unpopular it is. Never being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Immanuel Kant, a philosopher from the Age of Enlightenment, said, There are many things that I believe that I shall never say, but I shall never say the things that I do not believe. Now, as for the things that I believe, I will say all of them. But what I'm saying is that there is there are times to say things, and there are people to say them to. And so for a lot of platforms and people and and areas of life, there are a lot of things that I am never just going to be running around proclaiming to people in kind of a self-righteous, you guys need to do better kind of way. But I shall never say the things that I do not believe. And I think that is so, so hard to do in our day. Most of the time, I don't choose to tell people their choices are not in line with the gospel. And most of the time, it's really not my role to play in their life. You really have to have and use the spirit of discernment for the right times to do that. But I will not agree with someone because it will make me or them feel more comfortable in a conversation. And I will not nuance something to death to sugarcoat the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Because is that love? No, love is never engaging in the aid of arguments that the adversary is so carefully using against them. Love is always the gospel. You cannot outlove God. You cannot outlove Jesus. And therefore, his gospel and his commands are always in the best interest and out of love for his children. The gospel cannot be a horn of warning if it is soft and shy and timid and ashamed. It needs those who are willing to boldly and unashamedly declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, number three. He was a sign that they could and would be saved. Combined with number four, he was a sign that the Father was continuing to show mercy. Kind of going back to the first one, the restoration of the gospel is a sign that the Lord is remembering his covenants to save his people. And everyone in the world deserves to know that the Lord is remembering and working to gather them individually. And that's our job. That is our job as we gather Israel, as we perform whatever missionary work we are called to perform. Number five, he wants to give knowledge of salvation by the remission of our sins. We live in the fullness of times. We have received the fullness of the gospel. We have the knowledge that can give us so much peace and clarity. We have access to a power that cannot be overstated. We have access to information more than any other people in history. That knowledge gives us access to that power and that power is for everyone. The Lord has tasked us to prepare the world for his coming with that knowledge. There is nothing trivial about that. It is the most important mission you can spend your life doing, whether that means teaching your children or family the gospel, strengthening those around you, or finding people who don't know yet. The Lord is asking you to take up the mantle you were meant for and be a tool in his hands so that people can truly see the Savior. Number six, he was to give light to those who sat in darkness. 
There is a lot of dark in the world. We are commanded to help bring the light of the world to anyone and everyone. We should not engage in darkness, but we can courageously approach someone in darkness and try to bring the only light there is. There is no person too lost that the Savior can't save. And even if we think that they are too far gone, that is not our place to judge. There is a plan in place for everyone, and it's our job to help the Lord in bringing light into their view so that they have the opportunity to want it. And then it's up to them. Number seven, guide feet to the way of peace. I love the word guide. It's not forceful. It's a gentle word. It's full of respect for agency. The all-powerful Lord will never force someone to choose him, so we certainly shouldn't try. But guiding, yes. Take someone where they're at and gently guide them toward the Savior. Number eight, baptism. It's all about that covenant path. Some may think it's trivial. After all, if you take it on its face, what is it? We dunk someone in the water. But we know that it's more than that. It is a willing and repentant heart ready to do what is asked. And what is asked is that we be baptized. As we do our parts preparing the world for the second coming, are we taking seriously the important step we take each week to recommit to the Savior? It's another seemingly trivial action, eating bread and water. But just like baptism, it's more. It's a willing, repentant heart ready to do what's asked. It's only those kinds of committed hearts that the Lord can use to prepare the world. Joseph Smith said this of John the Baptist, and I think it can be applied pretty well to us. He was entrusted with a divine mission of preparing the way before the face of the Lord. Whoever had such a trust committed to him before or since, no man. What generation has had such a trust committed to them before? No generation. It's us. Let's read the experience of Christ's baptism. And John went down into the water and baptized him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straight away out of the water. And John saw, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon Jesus. Joseph Smith said this about the Holy Ghost descending like a dove. He starts first talking about John the Baptist. He was entrusted with the important mission And it was required at his hands to baptize the Son of Man. Whoever had the honor of doing that, whoever had so great a privilege and glory, whoever led the Son of God into the waters of baptism and had the privilege of beholding the Holy Ghost descend in the form of a dove, or rather the sign of the dove, in witness of that administration. The sign of the dove was instituted before the creation of the world, a witness for the Holy Ghost, and the devil cannot come in the sign of a dove. The Holy Ghost is a personage and is in the form of a personage. It does not confine itself to the form of a dove, but in sign of the dove. The Holy Ghost cannot be transformed into a dove, but the sign of a dove was given to John to signify the truth of the deed, as the dove is an emblem or a token of truth and innocence. Now continuing with the experience. And lo, he heard a voice from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Hear ye him. It's that simple, isn't it? For us and all the world who we are sent to prepare, hear ye him. Remember what Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, said when he was prophesying about John at his circumcision? That we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. That is the gift and opportunity that we have and the world has 
as the fullness of the gospel is available to us. We have the opportunity to serve him without fear. President Thomas S. Monson said, John's testimony that Jesus was the Redeemer of the world was declared boldly, without fear, and with courage. John taught, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. My hope for myself and all of you today is that you can boldly declare, without fear and with courage, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.